welcome to Women's Cricket Chat. I'm Hannah. And I'm Alexandra, Alex for short. On today's episode, we've got history maker Sue Redfern, the first woman to play and umpire in a World Cup. We talk about the changes since her debut in the 90s as a 17-year-old to how she's made a career out of umpiring today. This episode is another one full of inspiring quotes and stories from a leader of the women's game. Yeah. yeah, I'm good, thank you. Long time no see, so uh, yeah, I'm well, thanks. So you're obviously doing very well, so uh, enjoying life? Yeah, I try to do well, I hope. Yeah, yeah. it's been, been mad. I think the last time I saw you was, I don't know if it was after Scotland, but Scotland was definitely 2012. Oh my goodness. So um, I wasn't even umpiring then, that's the bizarre thing. Kind of like, that was my last, so 2012 was my last cricket playing year so uh, yeah you probably played in one of my last games of cricket well I've got some lovely photos from that Scotland uh, oh, bless well. you. there's a photo of you and me like high-fiving and stuff or high tennis oh excellent excellent I can't remember whether you were at gully and you caught one or something yeah. I just remember yeah there was definitely a nice photo. That, that would be memorable for me if I managed to catch it so that's good <laughs> I mean, it was memorable for me just being surrounded by like yourself and so many other like inspirational women. Like the MCC, yeah. honestly, changed my like. I don't really play so much now, but like changed my life massively. Like the whole C to B with the MCC is so true, kind of thing. It opened my world up. Yeah, more than and, I, I, and I think you know, for me, kind of like definitely, you know, if I'm if I ever go back and play a game of cricket, it would be for MCC because of the the reasons why you do it. You don't do it to win. You, you do it because of the passion of the game and to help others. And you know, kind of like for me, it's you know, it's a great initiative, and it's uh, yeah, it's really exciting. It would be awesome. It would be awesome to do an, uh, an MCC tour, uh, to be the umpire on the MCC tour. Yeah. But also as well, I could don one white. So I could maybe yeah. just get out there and play a game of cricket. So uh, maybe that should be my aspiration for the next few years uh, pending COVID. Perfect. So Alex, do you want to start with the first question? Obviously, you're a great player. I just kind of wanted to know what it was like to sort of make your debut at 17 looking back at it now Alex it it happened very quickly and I don't think you know I was prepared it just you know I was playing some uh, men's cricket there was no women's cricket girls cricket uh, when I was growing up so I was playing a bit of men's cricket played some women's cricket from 13 and and literally kind of like got scouted very early and just went through the system and then I got the call up when I was 16 just after the women's world cup in 93 in 1993 at Lords when the women won the world cup I was actually in the crowd and then that following winter you know it was the first time I've been picked for the winter training squad and and there they are the people that won World Cup that were my idols I'm suddenly training alongside them so it all it was all very quick and yeah to be perfectly honest I don't think I was prepared for it and I don't think you fully appreciate it you know I certainly didn't fully appreciate what a privilege that was until you know until I stopped playing but uh, you know the experience I think being around such great players and, and touring with people who were significantly older than me certainly set me up I think for life in terms of kind of like those life skills and, and things like that so incredibly nervous yeah and just just playing cricket with your idols was just an incredibly privileged position. Can I quickly ask as well so who were the players that you were looking up to and how did you hear about the 1993 World Cup? 
Yeah. So basically, like I say, I, I started playing cricket with my brother's cricket club. And my dad was an ex-cricketer, so kind of like we were around cricket clubs. And it was only my mum and dad had seen a newspaper article just when I was 13 that a women's cricket club just over the border in Derbyshire were forming and they were looking for players. And mum and dad kind of like showed me the newspaper article and said, you know, would that be something you're interested in playing women's cricket? And I said, yeah, I'll go along and have a look. So I joined the women's cricket team and it was it was Derby women's. My coach at the time was a lady called Sue Whittam who you know for me I attribute a lot of thanks to Sue because of the work which she did with me as a coach you know made me the cricketer I was really in terms of kind of like progressing me but because I was involved in a women's cricket club obviously the women's network the women's cricket club network were aware of the World Cup and everything was very much volunteer I mean it was the Women's Cricket Association rather than the ECB at that point who were the governing body for women's cricket and when that World Cup happened it relied on a lot of cricket clubs like Derby Women's cricket to support the tour so we actually hosted the West Indies women in terms of help them acclimatize get used to the logistics we helped with the logistics and volunteered to help that squad and we played in warm-ups with them and friendlies to, to really get them prepared for the World Cup so that was pretty much how I heard about the World Cup you know just literally because I was playing women's cricket and I suppose you know the, the great thing was that final was televised on uh, BBC Grandstand which was awesome but uh, yeah we went along on the day and we watched that and you know some amazing performances there was quite a lot of my colleagues then because I played county cricket for East Midlands women and Joe Chamberlain and Karen Smithers Wendy Watson were all part of that World Cup final and they literally were in that team so again I knew persons of that so you know I'd been around Jane was Jane Smith was in the uh, who who was Jane Kassar Jane Smith was in the World Cup squad didn't play in that final I don't think but uh, literally uh, yeah that's that's how I heard about it but who who are my idols most definitely kind of like Joe Chamberlain uh, I had the great pleasure of opening the bowling with her you know she was the out and out pace bowler you know really really quality bowler you know for me to open the bowling at the other end with Joe in county cricket was was a great opportunity so definitely looking up to Joe Wendy Watson and Karen both grit termination other squad members it has to be said kind of like for me my greatest idol in women's cricket is 100% was Jeanette Britton who unfortunately has passed now but literally for me Jeanette you know kind of like Jeanette Britton JB uh, was the epitome of what you want in a female cricketer that determination the quality the character and the, her willingness to help people so for me that that was my idol definitely like 1993 was a turning point and then like 2009 is obviously a turning point 2017 is a turning point and without yeah. that we wouldn't be seeing like that 86,000 at the MCG the past year but thinking about those kind of early playing days as well what was it like wearing kind of like the England shirt? Obviously, you, were you in skirts at that time as well? Like, what were the differences back then? Yeah, I mean, it's completely transformed, hasn't it? I mean, you know, I'd like to think I kept a level of fitness, but the fitness levels have changed significantly now. I mean, what was it like? I mean, it was an absolute privilege wearing a shirt, representing your country. It was a privilege to be given the opportunity to travel the world. You know, at that point, it wasn't paid. It wasn't professional. But, you know, fundamentally, you're still there representing your country. And, you know, you, you get into experience and, and see different cultures, which was just, you know, for a 17-year-old going away, my first major 
tour was was India and it was a seven week tour which included test match cricket as well at that point you know so to be away for that long you know it was the first time I've been away from home without my parents overseas and to actually experience that and be part of that you know kind of like it, it's just a massive opportunity really for for me and yeah kind of like we were in skirts so uh, it was 97 I think we trialed trousers for the first time as an international team I think we played New Zealand in 98 and they played in skirts and we played in trousers so kind of like it was really strange seeing that on a cricket pitch seeing that in the media that you know one team was wearing skirts the other wearing trousers and you know the the Women's Cricket Association uh, had a vote in 97 98 about whether or not we should move to skirts or trousers and there was a massive argument and there was a massive split because you know obviously the identity of the game I used to really I used to enjoy playing in a skirt but it wasn't practical and you know kind of I remember the reason why we certainly advocated uh, trousers was because I actually saw one of my colleagues in India take a slide in a skirt and actually get a really bad cut which ultimately became infected and you know that could have been prevented by wearing trousers so I think it just changed the dynamic of the game because it allowed us to be more athletic and it allowed for kind of like the, the types of fielding now that are common throughout really. Yeah because I guess I've done a little bit of reading about the whole kind of skirt and the whole kind of like outfits and stuff because I kind of thought oh my god why are these women like being made to wear skirts I didn't realize that actually it was for players choices and it was actually a marker of difference to set women different to the men as a positive yeah. thing not as a not as a negative it just was in those era and it was probably what was accepted I remember you know a couple of uh kind of I used to really enjoy my Lensmith skirt that was one of the main manufacturers of the skirts but it was really expensive so you know you really looked after your skirt because it was like 50 quid in those days to actually buy a new one so obviously you made sure it was well looked after but I do remember kind of like Enid Bakewell the legend Enid Bakewell which actually got me into cricket so I literally kind of like my brother was going along to a coaching session when he was a kid I was nine years old and uh, my mum was dropping my brother off at this coaching session and Enid was a coach and she came across when uh, my mum mum was walking away going well why isn't she staying and it was like well you know is she allowed and it was like yes she's allowed get her in here kind of like let's carry on playing cricket so it was down to Enid I started playing cricket but I remember Enid used to be involved in some of the junior England work and you know kind of like she would religiously make sure that our skirts were the right length not too short because obviously it's about respect in the game so uh, yeah I've got a lot to thank Enid as well in that respect yeah no definitely because obviously she's still around as well and I've heard is she still dabbling with a little bit of cricket here and there or having an input do you know I, I don't know how old Enid is she seems to just be evergreen really in terms of yeah I think she'll just carry on playing cricket until until the inevitable end really but I you know such an amazing role model around the era of Baroness Rachel Hayhoe uh, Flint but yeah Enid is a, an eccentric character who is just who's done so much for the game so amazing in terms of role model put so much back and yeah was a really great cricketer you know kind of like a smart cricketer when I left the East Midlands and started playing for Derbyshire when the when the county split and there were more county teams I went with Derbyshire and I remember playing against Enid for the first time because I'd always been in the same team as her until then and as a bowler it was very difficult to play you know to bowl against her because she you know she'd, she'd be ahead of her time she'd come up with all of these different random shots and you know would make it very difficult for you as a bowler to be comfortable so uh, yeah Enid is definitely one of those early kind of like influences of the game really. And you just mentioned that point as well about the regionals representing East Midlands to then Derby so I guess now the whole kind of regional structure seems quite new and it's exciting 
what do you think the strengths are for having a regional output like now versus the county system? Yeah, I, th- I think what's really important, what the big difference will be moving forward is actually historically county cricket was instead of club cricket. And I think what's really important now is there's more club cricket, which is available for women's and girls. So more cricket clubs providing opportunities, te- you know, female only opportunities for, you know, female cricketers. And I think, you know, having that regional structure means the best can play the best. And it means there's aspiration and, and that gap between international and county players is narrowed, which means there's more opportunity for people to progress and be cited and actually develop and and compete for an international position and it's and it can only be good for our game you know Australia you know let's be honest Australia are ahead in my opinion in terms of kind of like the depth of cricketers that can come into their squads and their quality of cricketers they've currently got you know and anything which we do in this regional structure has to be to to break that gap and it has to be to make sure that you know our current England players are competitive it's competitive for places and you know kind of like looking at you know first season of the Rachel Hayo Flint Trophy you know obviously I umpired in a, in a little bit of that competition before I went off to the international competition you know to see the quality of players coming through and that depth coming through and then obviously with the professional contracts it's only going to get better in terms of kind of like that which can only help with us commercializing and attracting more people to the game because we know that they're you know they're elite athletes and that's great. What sort of support do you think needs to be put in place to make sure that there are more professional cricketers and more contracts awarded? It's doing what it's what the ECB are already doing in it, I think, in terms of like growing that development centres, growing the regional structures, growing the professionalism, the amount of women that are able to actually make a living out of this sport. So they feel assured that ultimately it's not just England or nothing. So the more that actually there's more competitive cricketers who can make a living out of it, who can train full time, who can obviously kind of like, you know, look at Tash Farrant. This is a great example at the moment. You know, Tash Farrant a year ago lost her England contract. You know, where was she? going to go she's now got a professional contract and as a result of the Rachel Hayo I think she's got back into the squad hasn't she I mean you know I don't know the ins and outs of that squad selection but you know that's just proof that the Rachel Hayo Flint Trophy and the work she's done there is you know it's not a closed door anymore you know there are opportunities there are more opportunities for women you know kind of like uh, to carry on in their career and you know Tasha's come back from what might have been a very difficult period for her. Just thinking now as well, I want to quickly take you back to your uh, debut again, because you mentioned playing against India. So what was it like playing in India? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So nothing prepares you. Certainly nothing prepared me for, uh, you know, traveling overseas, being in a country that are just completely passionate about cricket. You know, it was the first time, you know, over here in England, you know, you get crowds of 250, let's say, would be the highest level of crowd I'd ever had been in front. And then suddenly in India, the first game, you've got 17,000 people watching you all screaming for India. You know, so kind of like a number of things, really playing cricket overseas in extreme being overseas and away kind of like staying in varied hotels and then in 95 when I first went to India we were kind of like semi-self-funded so kind of like the accommodation was basic shall we say you know kind of like being in environments like that playing in the crowds like that and also playing in different pitch conditions very different pitch conditions during the World Cup in 97 when we went back I do remember a game of cricket that was played after they literally dried the pitch using hot coals on silver trays so kind of like literally that's something that would 
wouldn't happen here. So just seeing that different culture, seeing that how pitches are prepared and, and how you get the game on and things. So yeah, very different experience uh, being being overseas. You know, a lot of uh, those days, you know, I don't know what it's like now, but those days uh, we had a lot of formal receptions outside of the cricket playing. So every night we were invited to somewhere to go and, you know, speak to people and, and you know, obviously uh, certain dignitaries within the local areas of India. So yeah, incredibly, uh, incredibly busy and tack on all senses, shall we say. Just sort of picking up on you mentioning the 1997 World Cup, I just wanted to know what was it like playing in that World Cup and how did you sort of deal with the pressure of playing in a big event like the World Cup? Yeah, so so obviously, you know, kind of like for, for cricketers, I think it's the pinnacle of your career. You know, like for athletics, maybe the Olympics is the pinnacle of their careers. You know, so playing in a World Cup is the opportunity to show and demonstrate that you're the best in the world. So, you know, the, the expectation levels go up. It's, you know, kind of like a series. You can come back from a series within a World Cup. If it's knockout, you can't come back. So every game is like a World Cup final. You know, so actually kind of like competing for places, it would be fair to say I was never a kind of like a consistent first team starter, you know, so I was always on the fringe, always battling for places, you know, so obviously you just want to, every time you go out in the nets, you want to prove yourself, you know, it is quite a pressured environment as it should be, I suppose, ultimately elite cricket, but, you know, yeah, it's very difficult because, you know, you want to do the best for the team, but at the same time you are competing against your teammates for places. So, you know, that creates an interesting environment. Looking beyond the game as well, tell us about when you kind of left playing for England, what did your kind of career look like? Yeah, so I suppose really I stopped playing in England in 2000. So kind of like I went back to club and county cricket. Uh, at that point, I wasn't working in cricket. It was only in 2005 I had the opportunity to come and work in cricket, 2005-06, I think it was. And I took that opportunity. And at that point, I came back to a little bit more. I'd left the game for a couple of years. I wasn't playing any club cricket. And then I came back to work for ECB as a women's and girls regional officer. And then since then, I've been in various roles within the organisation. So I'm currently now a facilities planning manager. So my job is to support cricket clubs and help cricket clubs with kind of like their facility investment grants and design and, and just making things more inclusive for everybody really. So yeah, I'm very lucky. I'm very privileged that I work in cricket. And I think, you know, from my perspective, you know, the way I see it is I'm one of the luckiest people alive because, you know, my passion was cricket when I was growing up and to work in it and to be able to influence change and you know to to give back something that's given me so much is is just a great privilege really you sort of mentioned that you took a couple of years out of the game do you think that sort of helped you sort of refresh and reset or do you think it's had a positive or negative effect for me, I think it's been a really good thing because I went off and worked in a completely different sector. So my professional career was completely different. It gave me new skills, different skills, different perspective to come back in and work. You know, if you look at my, if you look, I'm kind of like an ex-player who's now an umpire. Kind of like you think, well, okay, have you only ever done cricket? Whereas actually, you know, I have got different skills and different experiences that have come from different uh, sectors. You know, so actually having that break and having that refresh, it just, you know, when I came back, Alex, it just made me kind of like I was like wow I've missed this and I am really passionate about it you know so it just gave me that special impetus really to kind of like carry on. 
I definitely know what you mean with that kind of when you leave the game, whatever level, like, but doing this, speaking to like players and speaking to yourself as a former player and obviously now as an umpire, I'm literally getting that buzz again of like, I just want to go for a net. Yeah. And I think that's what it's about, isn't it? Like you have yeah. to see it to be it and that's at whatever level like I'm on about just having fun and that's what it's meant to be about as well isn't it so yeah for sure as soon as it stops being fun you've got to ask yourself why are you doing it you know so and that that's that's including the umpiring now I mean again I've, I've been really lucky with umpiring but you've got to enjoy it because it's a tough gig otherwise you know it's not it's not something that you go in half-hearted you know because some days are tough days so you've got to want to do it and enjoy it you mentioned about your services to cricket so obviously you were recognized with an MBE so what was that day like and tell us a bit more about it yeah just slightly embarrassed to be honest Hannah so I suppose it's going back to the day I actually received the letter that I'd been nominated for an MBE and I I honestly thought it was a joke you know kind of like I read the letter read it again and I was like no it must be the wrong person this is you know it must be some form of spoof and then when it finally sank in it was kind of like I, I just feel you know incredibly humbled that people have taken the time I don't know who nominated me people have taken the time to nominate me and endorse that and to be recognized for that you know it's it, it is a great privilege and you know I think you know kind of like from my perspective I want to make sure that I use that in a positive way to to show that you know women can do whatever they want you know you, you can be whatever you want within this game and you know for me that's really important that you know that MBE isn't about me it's not about my achievements it's about showing people that actually do you know what if you want to do something you can go and do it feel positive, keep your faith and you can go out there and do it. And, you know, I've just been, I've been lucky. Sometimes I've made my own look. Yep. I've worked really hard, but, you know, fundamentally kind of like it just shows that you can do whatever you want in this sport and you should be allowed to kind of like progress in whatever role you want to do. Obviously getting an MBE must be one of your proudest achievements. I just kind of wanted to know what have been sort of your proudest achievements on the field? Great questions, really. I think I think for me, I've never been asked this question, so I'm just going to think out loud, really. But for me, proudest moment on the field would be personally, 97 had a really good series against South Africa and picked up player of the match, one of the games, my best bowling figures. So from from that perspective, four for 21, kind of like I bowled, I actually dropped a, I dropped a catch for a fifer. So it was my own fault that I dropped a court and bowled. But yeah, kind of like I was really proud about that, about how my bowling was. So that was that would rank up there as one of the most kind of like memorable times. Another time was we, as a, as a women's cricket club, I played for Derby Women's Cricket Club and we were, we were Premier League, but we weren't the top team. So there was always teams above us. And we played once in a semi-final of a cup knockouts and the team which we were playing were by far going to be the team that, that should really progress. And we actually won that game. So I think from that perspective, you know, just showing that no one individual is better than a overall team performance. So I think from that perspective, that was a really exciting day and a really enjoyable day. And then I think from from my umpiring perspective, kind of like probably my proudest moment might have been kind of like the first time I walked out there in the World Cup game. So the first, my first debut in a World Cup umpiring, you know, the nerves were no different in terms of kind of like historically when I was a player, I used to get butterflies. Yeah, kind of like uh, most definitely felt quite proud and yeah, kind of like to, to get out of a game umpiring and, you know, uh, not making any errors and just enjoying the game and you know not being the center of attention on the umpiring is 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 a good day mentioned that you umpired in the world cup i just also wanted to know what was it like to umpire in the world cup and how did that opportunity come about 
Yeah, so I suppose like really it's it's a little bit like playing, that there's different layers, there's different, you know, kind of like layers of comp- competition really. So back in 2013, I started umpiring. In 2015, ICC put me onto a development panel of umpires, which consists of a number of umpires across the world who would umpiring in, in different development international competitions. So my first tournament was actually over in Thailand for a World Cup T20 qualifier. Uh, So that really started off my international umpiring career. So from there, the performances then from there dictate which which appointments you get. So I still sit on the ICC development panel and I'm appointed accordingly. So uh, yeah, that's how the opportunity came about. Obviously, when the World Cup in 2017 was really the first time, kind of like, I suppose, ultimately television and actually being on television kind of like came to came to my experience. So, you know, that really stepped up a notch in terms of kind of like, obviously, you know, you are being watched, you are on television, your, your, your decisions are being scrutinised, you've got lots of different processes that you need to learn so obviously from that perspective the preparation like any game of cricket preparation is key so yeah kind of like it was it was an additional kind of element what is it like dealing with the pressures of umpiring because I'm sure like if you're the main umpire then you've got third umpire in your ear you've got square leg um, so what's it sort of like being the main umpire having to make all those decisions in a pressure situation just again, like cricket, you know, if you're a player, you go out there and do practice and, and everything you do before that game of cricket helps you deal with that situation. So in my opinion, your preparation, if you've not prepared right, then uh, you're setting yourself up to fail. You know, the key thing is that you remember that you're working as a team. You know, you've always got the team there. And particularly when you've got television, you've got additional team members with the TV umpire, a fourth official. You've got, you know, people who are supporting you through a match referee. You know, ICC have umpire coaches coaches that are also there to support you and and to help you and to help develop so you know the pressure of it uh kind of like I think you know you learn through experience and uh you know it's just like cricket playing I think the more experiences you get under the belt you the, the better you deal with things you know and you reflect on how your own decisions are so you know I walk off a game of cricket it's not done I reflect on what I've done and I say can you do anything better and I think you know back in 2019 uh, was a difficult year for me umpiring I looked at it at the end of the season and said right what can I do to improve how do I get better I actually appointed a sports psychologist to kind of like help me through some of the issues which I'd encountered and to help me deal better with that pressure and to deal better with that situation so if if I've made a mistake or if there's a lot of pressure on me you know how do I deal with that in the moment and uh, you know that that's the critical thing so I think you know you've got to go there's no one size fits all answer you've got to work out what works for you and what's best for you and that's like a player really I suppose you know in that respect I just want to quickly pick up on that point as well about um getting that psychology and support and stuff what support is there at the moment for umpires at that top level is that kind of something that is accessible to everybody or is it something that you have to do off your own back there is support, Hannah. So like I say, you know, kind of, we're very fortunate that we've got uh, ICC have regional umpire coaches. So I have weekly sessions with my umpire coach, which we predominantly, the processes around being a TV umpire, but we also talk about just general umpiring and development and where I'm going and how I'm feeling, you know, and, and there are kind of like sessions and workshops, obviously, you know, a lot of it is about your own self-help and, you know, going off and thinking about what's best for you. So building an 
network of people that you trust and mentors and coaches yourself that you trust and you know you can go to and, and ask questions and, and ask them to challenge you you know kind of like is is pretty critical really so I have a bank of people that you know I believe are trusted where if something happens on or off the field I might contact them and talk them through that and you know ask for their honesty in terms of kind of like actually what do you think this is how I dealt with it what do you think just picking up on you talking about umpiring what made you decide to become an umpire because I know a lot of ex-players wouldn't assume or sort of go down that career path so what made you decide to become an umpire Back in 2012 was my last season. It wasn't Hannah because I, I played with you, mate. It wasn't that at all. It was literally, it was taking days for me to get recovered from playing cricket. It really did hurt for a number of days afterwards. So I decided that my playing days were behind me, finally ready to hang up the boots. And I thought long and hard about, I'm working in cricket. Is that enough? Do I want to do something else? Yeah, I want to do something else in cricket. I've got my coaching badges, but kind of like for me, coaching wasn't something that I wanted to progress. I thought about scoring and thought well you know as much as I enjoy scoring it's probably not something I want to progress and I thought well what about umpiring okay well I used to give the umpire a fair hard time when I was a bowler so you know why not put my money where my mouth is and see if I can do a better job and I think I was a little bit influenced by my dad as well who also cricket umpired in his local league back in Nottinghamshire so you know I think there was a bit of a family trait in there but uh, yeah kind of like so uh, that's the reason why I took up umpiring. Do you think being an ex-player, do you think that's helped aid your umpiring or do you think it's hindered it? I think it's done both, Alex. So I'll try and explain this in a fast way. But basically, I think to start with, it really helped because I understood the game and it helps you to kind of like predict some of the stuff and to understand potentially where players may flare, you know, because of the frustration of the situation. So I think to start with, it really helps your umpiring. But I think there comes a point where it actually hindered my umpiring in terms of, you know, as a player, kind of like you'd see a ball and you'd see a batter shape to make a shot and you'd like, you know where the ball was going to go so as a fielder you would react and you'd probably be in advance of the ball being hit you'd probably know where it was going whereas a cricket umpire you can't do that you've got to watch that ball all the way through and if you don't then you're going to miss things and I started to miss things because I was thinking like a player so yeah I think it hindered uh, at a certain point but I think to start with to help you blend into kind of like the on-field I think it helps to start with but it doesn't mean that somebody who's not played the game can't be a great umpire and Claire Polizak is a good example of that, who's just made a test debut. Just quickly on that as well, obviously there's a growing kind of cohorts of women coming through now. So who are the umpires to watch out for? Who are the kind of history makers and the people that are making you proud? Yeah, so overseas, there are a number of umpires across the globe who are now breaking glass ceilings. They're shattering them. You know, Claire Polizak making a test debut. Got Lauren Agenbach, who is from South Africa, who is the youngest umpire to make an international debut. You know, kind of like, so from that perspective, the I'm sure there's more to come from Lauren. She's so young. She's she's like literally child. So, you know, kind of like, she won't mind me uh, saying that, you know, she's so young in comparison. But uh, you've got Jackie Williams, who's always been, 
there or thereabouts around the West Indies, made her international ODI debut as well in men's cricket. And Kim Cotton, you know, not forgetting Kim, last but least, you know, the fact that she stood in a World Cup final in front of 86,000 people and just took it in her stride, didn't she? She just didn't look as if she was phased at all. So, you know, from that perspective, just an amazing kind of like array of people that I can look up to and, you know, who I consider to be friends, but also as well, who I can learn from is, is incredibly, I feel incredibly fortunate. Back here in the UK, obviously you've got people like Mary Waldron coming through from Ireland, who's currently still playing cricket internationally. So, you know, from that perspective, good for her, you know, keep playing as long as you can, Mary, would be my advice. And then you've got, you've got people in the UK who made their Rachel Hale Flint debut. So you've got a few people in there who've got long careers ahead of them. Some of them are ex-players, some of them haven't played before. And, and it's great to see more female umpires kind of like in the Rachel Hale Flint. But, you know, kind of like my concern is, you know, there needs to be more there needs to be more females who take up this, you know, whether it be from a playing background or whether it's uh, from a non-playing background. And and we've all got a role to play in that in terms of encouraging people. And, And part of that is, you know, I think, Hannah, you mentioned it earlier, you can't be what you can't see. You know, so, you know, the more we can visualise and make this normal, you know, kind of like perceive normal, the better that is. And the more we can see female umpires umpiring in a variety of formats, the better that is for all of us. Definitely, because like umpires to me growing up, thinking about years ago now, so literally as from age kind of like 9, 10 to 17 or so, it was always grey old men. I don't think I ever came across a female umpire. And I guess that's really quite sad, I guess, because... Yeah, yeah, I mean, sorry to interrupt there, but kind of like literally, kind of like obviously a lot of my cricket playing as a youngster was a lot of male umpires and there was nothing wrong with that. And, you know, there are still some of the guys who were umpiring who umpired when I was a kid, you know, so kind of like John Hayes is a good example. He still umpires in the women's leagues and he remembers me as like a a 16-year-old, 15-year-old kid, giving him a a little bit of jip about running down the wicket as a left arm over bowler, you know, sort of thing. So, you know, kind of like they are around but equally kind of like the Women's World Cup you know two female umpires I think in the Women's World Cup in 1973 you know there were female umpires around and I think I was quite lucky that you know subconsciously I probably wasn't aware this impacted me but I actually do remember some female umpires when I was growing up so maybe that made me think well that's a role I could do. 100% because that is so huge and that's something that I've realised as well looking back at old scorecards and stuff the names of the umpires are often women so I do wonder yep. what perhaps went wrong for us yep. not to build on that and realise it's only yep. now kind of taking off again I guess yeah but- I mean most more recently I mean you know I'm lucky that you know kind of like I sit on a national umpire panel for ECB you know actually I'm not the first female umpire to sit on a national umpire for ECB that's Lorraine Elgar you know and, and Lorraine an amazing umpire you know kind of like and you know again part of my progression is down to people like Lorraine who persevered in previous decades and generations you know and, and we've got a lot to thank you know people who did this when you know actually equality in cricket was less so than what it is now and I really want to bring back to Jackie Williams who you mentioned so the pair of you together in 2016 against Oman versus Nigeria you were the first two women in the middle so tell Alex and I about that yeah, it, it kind of happened, Hannah. So uh, literally, we weren't aware that we were going to make history until the morning. And somebody politely told us just before we went on the pitch and we we're like, oh, OK, no pressure. So, you know, kind of like we went out there. But to be fair, kind of like it was, you know, I, I'd known Jackie for just over 12 months at that point. And, you know, it was a real privilege. Jackie is a very 
calm, the most laid back umpire I've, I've probably stood with. You know, so from that perspective, it made it a very easy game of cricket. You know, that for me, umpiring in that male environment was really enjoyable. The lads were really supportive. And, you know, at the end of the day, kind of like they just treated it as two, two umpires. At the end of the day, that's what you want. You know, I'm just an umpire doing my job. Just want to get my job done. Get a good game of cricket. Hopefully everybody enjoys it. Make the right decisions. Do what the game expects. And yeah, kind of like it just, yeah, privilege that I was, I was setting a record then at that point. You've talked a lot about umpiring. How easy or difficult is it to become an umpire? And what sort of support is there when you're sort of transitioning from player to umpire? I live in the West Midlands back here. And when when I first decided I wanted to be an umpire, I was like, right, how do I get into umpiring? And it's really a local county organisation. So Warwickshire ran the course. At that point, it was a 13-week course. Every Monday night in the winter, I went along for 13 weeks and we went through the laws one by one, understanding of it. The first thing I would say is if there's any players listening, understanding the laws will help your cricket because I wasn't aware of some of the intricacies of the law. And I'd certainly, as a player, if if I knew the law better, I'd certainly be able to be a better player and utilise those laws in, in a better way. So obviously that helped. Warwickshire as an association then provided me with a mentor. So my first season of playing cricket, there was somebody I could always go to and ask questions. The appointments, they you know made sure I was standing with more experienced supportive colleagues so again that helps you you know there's nothing nothing prepares you you can learn the laws but nothing really prepares you for standing on that cricket pitch for the first time and being an umpire being in charge of 22 people everybody looking to you to have to know the laws and you know particularly if there's rain stoppages you know kind of like the complications of that what to do and how to do it that just comes down to experience and doing it and like learning from your colleagues was pretty critical in that so and I'm not going to lie it's nerve-wracking I feel sick before I go onto a field every single time and and I don't think that will change you know I think that's what it is but yeah kind of like it's uh, fortunate the support of Warwickshire and, and other colleagues can like help you through it really before we kind of start to kind of look to conclude because there's so many questions that Alex and I would love to ask you because it's just been so interesting because you're like you've got so many different angles to what you've achieved and stuff as well like obviously from playing to umpiring to being at the ECB for like so many years and in so many different roles but one of the questions that I've got that I'm really interested to find out about is especially with that West Indies tour in September so what was it like because it was constantly going up to you and explain to us a little bit about the technology of the game so for me technology in the game is great because at the end of the day as a player and as a cricket umpire you want the game to be played in the right way and you want to get the right decisions you know there's no doubt that as a cricket umpire I want to kind of like make the right decisions and sometimes my decisions are wrong and technology if that means it can help overturn a decision that's significantly wrong then I'm really happy with that because the right decision is made and from a personal perspective you know having all access to all the technology all the imagery it can only help me develop. If I use that post-match to review what I've done, understand why I'm making the mistakes, if there are any mistakes in there, or understanding what my trends are, it helps me as a cricket umpire. It helps me develop, you know, so I, I'm really, I really support the use of technology in that. You know, likewise with, we we did front foot no balls as every ball, as a checkers TV umpire. It's a process. So being a cricket umpire on field and off field is about every ball, you do the same thing. It's a routine thing. So every ball, you go through the same process 
process and the tidier your processes are and the more consistent they are, the more time you buy yourself to kind of like deal with the situation and the decisions. You know, being a TV umpire, I don't get to do it very often. So, you know, kind of like the consistency and making sure those routines are refreshed is really important. But, you know, kind of like that day in particular when I was TV umpire for the the most recent West Indies series, West Indies versus England women, that actually, I think it broke a record about the number of decisions that came off field in a T20 international. I have ne- I've had a couple of busy games. I had a really busy game in Perth as TV umpire in the World Cup in Australia last year. But that for me was the busiest second innings, particularly the second innings. It was, I think I had three decisions in one over. I had a decision that was a two, t- two decisions to make in one ball, you know, so it was a really busy time. And, you know, kind of like in, in, in the box with you, you have a match referee who is also doing his job and he's trying to catch up as well because there's so much going on. He's got a record and log things I'm trying to record and log things and there's still decisions coming up off field and then you've got some tech guys behind who's providing all the imagery and providing all the text and then of course you know the main responsibility in the communication is you know I make decisions based on images that a director gives me from a sky box you know from the tv box which is in another location in the in the ground you know and they're trying to kind of like keep up with it and you know so that communication side of it so you know for me that's part of kind of like how do you do your routines ball by ball just being able to kind of like say right breathe just keep calm and breathe trust you you know kind of like yeah I've got I personally set up my my room the way I want it as third umpire so I have my little notes and I have my crib sheets and things like that so if I've got a run out decision I've got a crib sheet that talks me through what I need to be doing for run out so it's about kind of like just trusting that crib sheet trusting what's right for me and just just going with it really yeah it was it was one of the busiest nights I've ever had cricket umpiring yeah, though, definitely, because I remember seeing stuff like on social media. And I think, do you listen to the No Balls podcast by Kate and Alex? I do, yes. Yep. <laughs> so you know you've been mentioned a few times then. <laughs> I, I am aware of this, yeah. So yeah, how do you deal with that social media? Do you look at anything on social media for a start as well? And what do you think about their podcast too? Because obviously it's so much fun and it's lighthearted and you kind of have to just laugh, don't you? And how do you keep so calm, like you mentioned, and communicate so effectively? It just comes to practice. And I think going back to the social media thing, it's probably not a good idea to look at social media, particularly after a game, because everybody's got their own opinions. And, you know, ultimately kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm going to make some mistakes. You know, there are going to be some errors or there's going to be some perceived errors. And I suppose ultimately kind of like it's about my way of dealing with it. I think one of the hardest things, you know, is, is about really kind of like people that make comments that, you know, kind of like don't actually know the laws of cricket, you know, so it's really difficult for me when I go onto Twitter or, or Facebook and you see some infactual things about actually the law of the game criticising my colleagues because they don't understand the laws you know the more we can make laws awareness the more we can simplify laws and you know kind of like actually kind of like the less criticism I think sometimes umpires get so it is difficult and I think you have to manage that so I, I'm not keen on going on social media after a game of cricket no balls podcast a bit disappointed I've not been invited to be honest on it but you know that would be uh, an interesting uh, podcast I think they you know it's great what they're doing and it's great what you guys are doing in terms of kind of like the more we can talk about women's cricket the more we can see faces of women's cricket you know the better that is good effort to those two they're a bit crazy though aren't they especially from what I see of their posts on social media just picking up on again the umpiring you've obviously trialed out a lot of different umpiring roles what would you say has been your favourite so I mean what what do you mean in terms of kind of like the role you play on field or off field yeah 
So, I mean, I'm a cricket umpire because you want to be out in the middle and, and being in the middle, you've got the best seat in the house. But I think some umpires don't like the TV umpire role. I think some of them don't like the technology or don't like not being the on-field umpire. You know, from my perspective, I love doing it. I, you know, kind of like I, I love doing the TV umpire role. I love technology and I love making those decisions and, and doing that. But likewise, I equally love being on-field and, you know, love seeing the game from the best position, really, you know, stuck to stump you literally have the best view in the world so you know from that perspective all jobs you know kind of like all part of the team and you're all contributing to hopefully a successful team as well so regardless of whether you reserve on field off field to me it doesn't matter you've still got a role to play to to be successful perfect i think as long as that's fine with Alex, I think that brings us to kind of a good place to finish up. Would we be able to still kind of 60 seconds just to do some fun questions, just quick kind of fire? Like. Okay. <laughs> well, Alex is a pro at these questions, so I'll let okay. Alex start and then we'll just chip in. Best cricketing memory? England women win the World Cup in 93. Worst sledging incident? So many to name, really. Yeah, just so many to name. I remember once that some of my youngsters in my club team made some comments that were totally inappropriate and, you know, just remembering to stand there, just go, that's not the way we've taught you to sledge. You sledge better than that. The worst sledging that you've ever said. As a cricket umpire, this isn't great. So probably, probably short stay. Cricketing idol growing up. Growing up, cricketing idol was the uh, West Indies cricket team when I was growing up. The entire men's West Indies cricket team because they actually kept me wanting to play cricket. Who had the worst music choice growing up? It's probably going to be me because in those days we'd take CDs and Walkmans and tapes. Actually, the first tour in 95 in India, we, we took Walkmans and literally the only music I'd have on there was Erasure. That was it. Sorry. Last book you read? Crime Thriller. Favourite TV show to binge watch? Pretty much loving The Crown on Netflix. But I've got into, and, and I'm ashamed to say this, I've got into New Girl. But also as well, I, I will also make my point that I am a closet home and away fan. Honestly, I love New Girl. I've seen it about four times. That and Brooklyn Nine-Nine are my go-to shows. So Queen's Gambit as well. Just put, I'll just plug Queen's Gambit as well. And your favourite podcast to listen to? Obviously yours. Did I succeed in that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was more, maybe there was a subtle hint, you know, maybe. <laughs> What's going on with your, uh, your background? What are all the German uh, football yeah. scarves? So I put up a fake background and Alex was like, no, that just looks terrible. So I was like, fine, you can see my background. So it's, um, but me and my boyfriend, whenever we go abroad, low, obviously COVID, we can't do that at the moment. But we always have yeah. a football match and we collect a scarf. But it's a good talking point as well. It breaks the ice for like awkward things yeah. if I have any kind of thing. But yeah, we've got some German. We've got Melbourne from, I went to World Cup last year as well. Very good. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't actually know, but if you realise that as well, so I was there as a, media member journalist and stuff which was mad i hope i didn't walk past you and totally ignore you well, apologies in advance if i did well, i was just thinking when i was like i was like wait i didn't actually see you did like stuff really awkward if we actually like bumped yeah, yeah. and said hello and stuff yeah, but yeah. Uh, i don't no, i don't brilliant. think we actually did but because Good obviously stuff. i worked with lightning i bumped yeah, yeah. into um both minion de priya and Jamari Atapatu. So in the press conference, as um, Minion was walking in, she saw me and gave me a hug. So then all the other journalists were looking at me like, yeah, like, what's going on? Like, you're not meant to hug the players. But yeah. I guess it's 
we built such a culture at Lightning of like the whole Lightning family and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, you know, it's... I don't know Mignon Dupree very well, but uh, Shamari Atapatu I've umpired quite a bit. And I just love Shamari Atapatu. I think she's I think she's pretty funny. You know, so imagine in a team environment, she'd be pretty funny. But, you know, great cricketers, both of them. And, you know, kind of like how good was Mignon Dupree against England in that World Cup? I mean, really, that's the reason they didn't get through. Yeah, 100%. Um you know? Because people as well, they're like, I think people underestimate South Africa as well, especially when you look in the domestic kind of setups now, the players in that South African team are playing in the like the WBBL, they're playing in the yeah. Super Leagues, the hundreds, the, yeah. the IPL kind of competitions, the Challenge yeah. Cup and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, it's no wonder that they are performing now as a team because look at what they're doing. They, domestically. You know, as a, as a unit, they've got some very talented players in really. I mean, you know, I just remember kind of like Laura Woodvart and in the semi-final, that cover drive she played was just incredible. Kind of like it properly was a proper one of the best cover drives I've ever seen. Definitely, uh, that. you know, yeah. great game of cricket, and she played really well in that game because she's always been criticised for being slow on the strike rate. But, okay, you know, kind of like really, really talented. Uh, so, so yeah. And obviously you've got Nadine Leclerc, isn't it? She uh, played in the Big Bash, didn't she? Women's Big Bash this summer. Mad. But thank you so, so much as well. No, my Very pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for advising me. I wish we could chat for longer because honestly, there's so much we'd love to go into. It's so hard. So we'll definitely have to do this again. Perfect. Point, Alex, isn't it? Definitely. Just quickly, where can our listeners find you on social media if they want to sort of follow you or find out more about you, really? Yeah, so I'm I'm not well hidden. So I'm uh, just uh, Sue underscore Redfern at Twitter. Perfect. And and I haven't really ventured into the world of Instagram. I've got an Instagram account, but I don't really know how to use it. If I'm being honest, you just post photos, so it's fine. I know. It's a bit like Facebook, but simpler. Fair enough. Honestly, that's where the impact can be for the like younger girls growing up who want to be like umpires and stuff. Because yeah, yeah, I'm such a good place for that. Honestly, well, I will make a concerted effort in 2021 to do more Instagramming. There you go. That's my (laughs) place. Massive thank you to Sue Redfern for coming on and being a guest on the podcast. And to all our listeners, if you want to keep up to date with everything we're doing, you can follow us on Twitter at WCricketChat and on Instagram at Women's Cricket Chat. And if you want to give us a like on Facebook, we are Women's Cricket Chat. And if you wanted to give our personal Twitters a follow, Hannah is at Hannity1194 and I'm at Alex Jane Pereira. This has been Women's Cricket Chat. Tune in next time. Thank you.